I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hi, Raghu is back. I am back with Roshi Joan Halifax, who is uh, many things to me, certainly a mentor, a teacher, a friend, and shall we say co-lover of Ramdas. And uh, well, you used to come, what did you used to say when you'd come to the house and we were staying, you know, staying there around whatever, working with Ramdas? You'd say, I've come for my heart transplant, right? Is that what you said? Yeah, I'd say, I've come for my heart transplant. And then when we were, you know, hanging out for a few more days, then I would uh, propose marriage. (laughs) And then he would cringe. And um, But the last time that we were together in the flesh, so to speak, uh, he proposed marriage to me. He did. And I, I, I cringed. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. So sweet. So um, I, I, I would love, uh, I said before we got on, just to share that love of Ramdas. But uh, w- one of the things that I have never heard from you, you've never shared with me, we've just, I've just never gotten around to it or whatever, but it's an appropriate moment. Uh, and that is, your first, absolute first recollections of meeting Ramdas, and then whatever, shall we say, marked uh, events with Ramdas that happened over the years. The, the we are, as I mentioned, we're working on a book called "Remarkable Encounters with Ramdas." So, we 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 love for you to share that 
through that medium and also where we are right now. So, yeah, what, when did you first meet Ram Dass and what, what was that like? You know, I uh, married Stanislav Grof, who was the, um, uh, <laughs> gosh, I married Stanislav Grof in 1972, <laughs> right? Um, and, uh, you know, it was uh, um, a very interesting encounter with my husband, um, who uh, was from Czechoslovakia and who worked with LSD uh, as an adjunct to psychotherapy with dying people. And so it was through Stan that I met Ramdas, and that was in the early 70s after he came back, after Ramdas came back from um, uh, wherever he was in India, you know, doing his thing. He was I don't right remember. here where this picture is. <laughs> That's where he was. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and it's one of those things, you know, Stan is a very unusual person. He was very unusual then, kind of reserved, sort of old-fashioned Czech, uh, Czechoslovakian. Um, uh, but, you know, I had this feeling, so, I, you know, maybe Ramdas and Stan didn't exactly uh, click, but um, I felt this immediate connection. Yeah. I felt like, you know, I had met my sort of elder brother. And I think part of it's because Ramdas was such a tease. <laughs> you know what I mean? He, I mean, uh, and Stan was such uh, a not tease. <laughs> so, um, so it, you know, it was kind of like meeting my older brother or somebody I just could get along with. Uh, and, um, you know, of course, there was this uh, really important connection that we had around psychedelics, but also around spirituality in general. And also um, R.D. Uh, Ramdas, we call him R.D., um, you know, super smart and, you know, well-educated. And um, uh, so, you know, I was interested in his mind, too. Mm. I was interested in his heart. But, you know, he, he was just a very fun uh, uh, impish uh, person where I had this kind of resonance and I had the feeling I'm not exactly sure of the physical place where we met you know I, I don't recall it was so long ago but I had that feeling uh, that uh, I just remember the feeling of the meeting mm. that I would be his friend forever mm. and um, yeah and that forever of course uh, turned into another kind of uh, forever, which is, uh, um, you know, he's our ancestor now. And so it is. And, uh, you know, I, you know, we, so we knew death was coming, uh, but actually it was for years we knew death was coming. And uh, um, I remember uh, year after year, Dasima would call him the comeback kid because he'd have this thing and just about die and that thing and just about die and uh, you know he just had some kind of spirit it wasn't that he didn't want to go it was more like uh he had work to do further work not on himself but really for others mm -hmm. so yeah no, but in those early days, and I, you know, I remember because we we met. It was in Santa Fe around Ramdas, 
and in those early days, he started to do uh, a lot of work, actually, around death and working with uh, the dying people and so on. And this was also a major uh, theme in your teaching life as well. Do you recall how you came well, together you, around that? So, you know, Raghu, um, I remember in, uh, I think it was 80 or 1980, 81, uh, Ram Das and I were invited up to, uh, uh, it was at Eugene, Oregon, um, to do a benefit for Chagdu Tuku Rinpoche and Gyaltro Tuku Rinpoche for their uh, projects. And um, it was around being with dying. And of course, you know, uh, Ram Das had this extraordinary history uh, of working with dying people. And um, he was very deeply connected with Stephen Levine and, and Dale Borglum. And uh, both of whom were, are, were, Stephen's gone. Mm -hmm. uh, Dale, Dale actually went to Mount Kailash with me a long time ago. Mm. But, um, you know, there was this uh, kind of space that uh, Ramdas held around uh, care of dying people that influenced so many of us. And um, it was, you know, to bring uh, spirituality back into the dying process. And so, you know, it was a sort of a perfect fit. There we were in Eugene with those wonderful llamas talking about uh, death and dying. And um, I, I felt like, you know, that work combined with his work in the prison system, um, because uh, that was something else that uh, he uh, was very much a part of. And he was like the first guy doing this kind of stuff. He, he was like our big uncle, if you will, or mm -hmm. our, our grandfather. Or, eh, he wasn't that much older than me. But anyway, um, you know, it was one of those times where you're meeting somebody who's um, uh, where there's, uh, you have a lot to learn. And, you know, I think that uh, the, the sort of work that Stan and I did in um, using LSD as an adjunct to psychotherapy was really important work because it taught us so much about the human heart, the human mind. Um, and it was very dramatic and, or, you know, sort of death, rebirth theme, a kind of hero's theme and so on. That's great. Um, the other side of the equation, of course, is that uh, Ramdas brought another kind of spirituality or kind of heart feeling into the work. And I think um, that was very important for Stan and for myself, of course, for Dale and Stephen, um, that uh, this more... Uh, spiritual ground and um, less, you know, sort of Jungian archetypal, mm -hmm. but uh, really having to do with love. So mm -hmm. he, he brought that into focus for us. And mm -hmm. he, he kept that, you know, throughout his lifetime. Yeah, his advisal was always sit bedside with people who are dying and yeah. become like a loving rock. I know. Right? I know. I it's, it's just the best. I love that image of the loving rock, yeah. you know, and it's sort of loving rock. But, you know, I, I will say that he had the kind of uh, uh, capacity for offering presence to people, um, no matter what, you know, people who were just so annoying. 
And he, <laughs> he would be there, you know, the same as people who were not annoying. And that was a very good lesson for me. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, God, I've been in some interactions. And I think, oh, my God. But then, you know, I just have to think about R.D. And there he is with this kind of uh, his beautiful blue eyes glistening and totally resting yeah. in presence. Yeah. You, you know what? You've just described my day to day. I get the influx of males who love to remember foundation. And there are there are some questions or asking for advice or something, whatever it may be, that I look at and I go, are you really? Jesus, God, no. And then exactly what you described pops up. There he is with those beautiful blue eyes, as you said, and just presence and everyone, everyone deserves respect, you know, without saying yeah. it. He never even said that to me. He'd just look at me when I'd say something like that. You know, there's this note that I got from somebody. He'd just look at I didn't even get through the damn thing knowing what the answer is. Be, you know, be there for the, be here for that person. Yeah, yeah. Just unbelievable. Now, um, but, no but, in the, let's just say, back to the beginning days of knowing him and, and uh, getting closer to him, he comes, I mean, by that time, I mean, I think you were already uh, practicing Zen and were, uh, I mean, maybe uh, how long, it wasn't that long after that uh, you and Stan parted company, I think, right? Right, yeah. But, um, you know, uh, R.D. was totally not a Zen person. You know, it's, he could give a flying hoot about Zen. Um, you know, he was uh, a kind of Hindu lover to the core. <laughs> Hindu <laughs> lover. <laughs> you know, he he was a real bhakti. And um, Zen is not a bhakti trip. So I think the reason why he and I were so fun together is that we were so different. And mm. we had kind of, uh, you know, he had his cult and I had my cult and that was all fine. I, I learned a lot from being in his presence um, with him, uh, you know, bringing forth this bhaktic element. And I think that he learned a lot, you know, being in my presence because I have this kind of incisive clarity at times. <laughs> and so, you know, it was good. It was a, a wonderful, wonderful combination, I, I feel, um, at least from my point of view, I had so much fun. Mm. Uh, and, I, you know, he would tease me and I would tease him. And we were perfectly public about our peculiar interactions with each other. Mm. It was good. Yeah. Just to let everybody out, out there know, the relationship was so beautiful to watch. I mean, so much love way beyond Zen, Bhakti, nothing to do with that. It had to do with just the core uh, of being, connecting on that level. It was quite something. Um, that's why I said co-lovers at the very beginning. Um, now, but there is another element, and it was a real element, and it kept going on for many, many years. I saw it, and you experienced it, and, you know, Ram Dass's whole thing, and he'd talk about as soon as he start to talk about souls, then he'd take a look at Roshi or whoever other of our Buddhist friends <laughs> might be there 
as if I'm sorry I had to say that word. It's terrible, but it was so strange. But so through all of uh, that connectivity, of course, he was constantly introducing Neem Karoli Bob Maharaji. Pictures of him everywhere, wherever he was. Yeah. His presence was always discussed. Uh, Ramdas's um, deep, deep, deep connective faith in Guru and so on. And this is not part of uh, of Zen tradition. And uh, <laughs> so, tell me, yeah, just just how did you when you probably first started? I mean, you didn't know who Ramdas was before Stan introduced you, did you? Well, I I probably did actually. Yeah. I think he was a cultural icon, right? Uh, both, right. You know, Richard. by the sixties, definitely, and yeah. you know, I was pretty out there in the sixties myself. So, but um, you know, I, I I love one of the things he used to say is you know from role to soul. Yeah. And uh, but you know, he he also knew that I as a Buddhist, I'm not into the soul thing, but I am sort of into the soul thing because I. I said in one of my books that um, uh, the notion of a soul, like, you know, for example, soul singers, or when you look into someone's eyes and there's a kind of depth there, a depth of care, a depth of character. So that's what I equate with soul. And I think he did too. So I have a feeling we weren't so far apart, but he was so into the soul thing that it just became, you know, in a way, a kind of, joke between us because he knew I'm you know the soul thing is not necessarily the Buddhist thing so uh, you know like when he would do the loving awareness you know thing loving aware I am loving awareness and it would be you know he would be the loving and then I would be the awareness <laughs> or you know he would sort of tease about uh, you know being he wouldn't say soulless, but, you know, he'd, he'd say soul. But he'd say soul in such a way it was like a little bit of a dig. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I loved it. I mean, frankly, just a sweet little harmonious relationship is just my idea of a dreadful situation. Um, you know, uh, the I think people enjoyed us together because um, we could uh, tease each other without having sappy mercy uh, interfere with it. <laughs> sappy mercy. Oh, Lord, Lord. All right, well, okay, but the, that other ingredient of uh, Neem Karoli Baba, what, what, were you, what was happening to you? Because you were constantly being, if you were around Ramdas, that was in your face, so to speak. And what was your own experience of not just what his was, but who is this being? And, you know, reflecting out of these. You know, I, I, it's funny. Um, Neem Karoli Baba was so homely. Um, you know, it was, I always was fascinated uh, by uh, the thing with him because I didn't go to Kanchi. I never met him. But, you know, I love his uh, followers. But, you know, he's this kind of big, homely sort of, smiley, sneery Hindu guy. And I was like, well, that's so interesting. But how I felt Baba was not as this um, uh, entity in history or time. 
I really felt Baba through his successors, so to speak, or through through his students, you know, through you, through Ramesh, through Danny, through Ramdas, of course, Mirabai and others that, you know, that Baba shone through the people who loved him. And so, you know, the thing that was interesting for me was this kind of unconditionality that uh, seemed to percolate through uh, the personalities of uh, the people who went to Kanchi or wherever Baba was and uh, spent time with him. And that that made me love Baba, that mm. Baba. Mm. You know, I loved Baba through his people. Mm. You know what, though? I'll remind you of something. Uh, many years ago, I, I can't remember the circumstance. I think maybe Duncan Trussell was there. And we were, you know, we were chatting on a podcast of some sort, something. And I asked you this question, just, you know, what do you see when you look in the, a picture of Nim Karolibam? And you stopped for a minute and you then said, empty. I said, yeah. empty. And then... That was and, pretty good. <laughs> yeah. But then not long before that... Um, Actually, it was you and I think Frank and Ramesh was doing, they were doing some kind of uh, thing in Ramdas's house. And uh, Ramdas just started recalling his connection to Maharaji. And he got welled up with emotion, you know, just love. And then he stopped. And he just kept going over and over. He's saying one thing. He was so empty. He was hmm. so empty. And I've always, in, in my own being, connected these two, th you know, both of you in this way that, to me, absolutely cuts through soul of Hinduism and Buddha mind of Buddhism, however which way you want to call it, into a, a much, you know, a deeper place and maybe a little bit more um the commonality because there can only be one thing in my mind there you know it can't be oh they're right about souls no they're right about no soul uh to me you know i emptiness because it was my experience too looking there's nothing coming back at you there was no you know the subject object thing was god which is funny because that's what bhakti yoga is right for the for yeah. the student you know and by the way, in that same day, when I said to you, when we talked about this, and uh, I talked about being in the subject-object teaching, shall we say, and you said, "Well, you know, one day you'll 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 get through that. You'll get through that. You'll pass through being in that kind of relationship as a necessary thing for a while. It's good." And I said something. Uh, like, well, Roshi, that's fine for you. You've had a billion more uh, practice sessions or something, right? I'm just getting on with it in comparison, and you poo-pooed me. But, um, yeah, emptiness. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the, the, the game of it. Um, uh, the game of it for me is emptiness and interconnectedness. 
you know, there's mm. just this weave of uh, connection that arises out of the opposite of contraction, which is not empty, but is about being in a, a defended space. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Um, before we, we leave uh, Ramdas, <laughs> we're not leaving him, but before we move on maybe to another subject that I wanted to bring up with you, um, is there a, just a little anecdote of something that pops into your mind of a, a, the kind of playful interchange, exchange, um, situational thing that you happen to be with Ramdas that just pops up? Part of our little storytelling here. Well, I, this isn't funny, but I thought it was very uh, sensitive of him. Um, I have a wonderful assistant, uh, uh, Noah Kigaku Rossiter, and a really beautiful person inside and out. And um, he visited uh, with Ramdas a number of times uh, because you know I went and he went. And um, you know he's a young guy and. Uh, has a lot going on in his life. And, uh, you know, here I am, this old lady sort of dragging him around to these old people who are remarkable, <laughs> but still, um, you know, and he, he doesn't have any of the history of the 60s or 70s or 80s. He was born in 85, so what? Mm. And, um, um, but I could tell he was, you know, he felt something in Ramdas that he just loved. Mm. And um, uh, one day uh, we were we were at breakfast, and um, uh, you know I was feeling um, Ram Das's life ebbing, that he would be gone uh, sooner or later, and um, uh, also you know every moment that I could spend with him. Uh, I gave my full attention to him and really tried to love him and offer him love and also learn from him. But I could see my assistant was a little bored. You know, it's just old people hmm. talking about this weird stuff and, um, uh, and not realizing what a treasure Ramdas was and is. And then um, uh, Ramdas uh, began to uh, talk to Noah. Um, and it was very kind of an intuitive thing on his part, you know, uh, saying basically, do you know how lucky you are? You're, you yeah. know, helping this person and so on and so forth. And I think it was, uh, you know, really came out of um, his own experience of the death of his mother and then uh, the death of Neem Karoli Baba. And, you know, what he was saying is, is that um, we should um, offer ourselves um, to these relationships that are important to us and not take them for granted. And um, I, I actually videoed Ram Das, my little iPhone, uh, talking to Noah about this. And it was for me, it was very, very moving because um, it wasn't just about a young man's uh, sort of relative disinterest and a couple of old people 
celebrating all the time like Artie and I did. Um, but it really, uh, it had to do with, you know, us cherishing this life, these relationships, and um, not taking anything for granted. Mm. So that was good. Mm. That was really good. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful moment. Very touching. I, you know, I have it somewhere. Really, in I'd my, love to have uh, that. Well, I'd yeah, love to see it, in, yeah. I'll ask Noah. It's on my iPhone. Mm. This thing here. <laughs> Try and find it. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's very moving. Mm. And, and I think it was, you know, I think it, um, I have a feeling that uh, Noah really heard it, you know, that was maybe four or five years ago. And, you know, Noah could have cycled out, you know, young people do that all the time. And, um, you know, the opposite has happened. He's actually not cycled out. Uh, he's deeply embedded in Upaya in with my students who are now becoming his students. And, um, it's a, you know, mm. it's a nice thing. Oh, beautiful. But I think he heard RD in a very interesting way. Mm. Mm. Uh, just uh, at one point also, we were, um, this completely different time, we were at Ramdas's house and we were having dinner, a few of us. And uh, it was the first time I bought, I brought rather a Duncan Trussell to meet Ram Dass. Oh, I remember that. Oh, my God. And his mother had just died. Uh, uh -huh. And he was going through all of that. And uh, he asked both of you to give some feedback to him. And, and Ramdas did. But I was, uh, he was taken by this. And, and this kind of is a segue for me in, in this little chat with you to what's going on today. And, uh, and what you said to him was the necessity, you may not have been, you know, may not have been that uh, pointed, but the reality of the mystery and embracing yeah. the mystery. And, uh, you know, this is something that uh, I'd love for you to just talk about a little bit because we are all, I mean, Aside from the esoteric meaning of that, how about the exoteric meaning in terms of this pandemic that nobody really seems to know? There's no handle on it, right? All the way to developing a vaccine, to anti I mean, they don't know what's working, what happened in one country over another, how long it's going to be, what's going to... Uh, talk about a mystery, you know, in, in the external sense, but talk about it in, in the sense of us embracing something within ourselves. You know, I think this is um, such uh, um, such an important question because, as you said, Raghu, we're living in a flow of radical uncertainty. And what it's teaching us, I feel, uh, which is a very profound lesson, is the truth of emptiness mm. that, um, and groundlessness that we can really not control anything. We don't know what will happen in the next moment. And I think this is really uh, when we're in this unfiltered immediacy, um, we're in the mystery. That's the mystery. We don't know. And a good friend of Ram Dass's was uh, Glassman Roshi, Bernie Glassman, who was my teacher. 
my Zen teacher, my last Zen teacher. And um, this was something I feel that uh, is um, uh, Bernie really um, had settled uh, inside of himself into this quality of spaciousness, of radical openness, what Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind, um, that of not knowing, resting with not knowing. And it's so important um, because uh, it's true. We cannot know. And I think that, you know, Ram Dass carried that spirit. He was, you know, he was, I, I always feel in a state of, uh, he was perpetually surprised. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, he just, yeah. you know, like he was a kid. And um, that kind of uh, surprise is really important for us to um, actualize now. Because, boy, are we surprised. Whoa. <laughs> But um, our surprise at this point is, of course, characterized by uh, a great deal of unrest. We're afraid of what's ahead. We want to know. Um, we need answers. Uh, we're basically prediction machines. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, I think uh, that empty quality of Neem Karoli Baba and also Baba's, you know, Baba actually, he was empty, but he was also full of love, you know. And um, we're in it right now, the empty part. We can't know. We're in radical uncertainty. But uh, on the other side, um, if there's any distrust, if there's a contraction, then we're in this situation of trying to uh, give shape and form to something that is emerging, that is in process, by the way, which is always in process, which is always emerging. So we're in this emergent mystery. Mm. Yeah. Something else you, you have talked about um, I mean, so many people it are so, there's devastation on the level of losing, or being sick, obviously, first, but then losing work, feeding families, and so on. And, and of course, this radical uncertainty of when all of that will change, will there be any kind of normalcy after that. And so there's a lot of loss of any kind of hope which is a tough word altogether and i you and i have talked about this uh before and you've written something about it and you called it wise hope and i think it would be uh advantageous to to go further into what that really is to you and how people can work with it in a way that's uh, uh, going to um, alleviate some of the suffering well, it's a, it's a great question, um, Raghu, because I think that from um, uh, the point of view of um, uh, uh, Buddhism, you know, we sort of look at uh, hope and fear as a uh, nemesis. Hope is about the the, you know, what we really want to happen and how we can make it happen and so on and so forth. And um, 
you know, fear is also a nemesis. So I got very interested in this notion of hope because hope always bothered me. And in hmm. actuality, um, uh, I didn't... Um, uh, I didn't even think about think, uh, thinking about hope until I was asked to give a talk at Sojiji Monastery in Japan mm. and on the theme of hope. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm, you know, this Zen person, old time Buddhist. Um, I'm not into the hope thing. And, you know, it just didn't seem very Buddhist to hope to me. And, um, you know, and it certainly in today's situation where uh, the economy is in worse shape than it was during the Great Depression and where uh, a quarter of a million or more people have died and millions have been diagnosed with this uh, virus and um, we're in the middle of this global pandemic and we're in a real crisis it's existential the heart and mind uh, we just don't know what is ahead of us um, and we see that you know the medical system is facing uh, you know, un, unprecedented uh, challenges. And, and the whole situation is happening in the space of uh, our climate catastrophe, which is uh, related to it. You know, hope? Are you kidding? But, you know, I also remembered a line from Suzuki Roshi that says, you know, life is like stepping onto a boat, which is about to sail out to sea and to sink. It's like, yeah. <laughs> That is a pretty uh, catastrophic perspective, which is not unreal. And we, you know, and we, we seem to be sinking. And um, I think that the sinking feeling, not just the sinking of the Tao and the sinking of our, uh, you know, everything that's happening around us, but um, it's coloring uh, the world for many people. And, you know, I really couldn't, um, Raghu, say the word hope without feeling like I was betraying reality. Mm. No. You know, but then I got asked to do this talk. And, um, uh, and then I remembered um, a book by my good friend, Rebecca Solnit, uh, Hope in the Dark. And I was like, you know what? Hold on. I need to, to look at hope again. And... Um, I began to uh, explore hope in terms of what hope isn't. And, um, uh, you know, I, I saw hope is not the belief that everything is going to turn out all right. It's not that at all. Um, we know people die, populations die, boy, do we know that right now. We know that whole civilizations die. <laughs> Look at the Roman Empire. We also know planets die. Look at Mars and stars die. Um, yeah, the boat is going to sink. You know, and also, if we look at what's happening today, we see the evidence of suffering all around us, of injustice, of futility, of harm. And, you know, the virus is a, is a really strong case in point. I mean, who knew? Certainly not most of us. But we have to understand, Raghu, that um, hope is not a story that's based on optimism, that everything's going to be okay. You know, I mean, 
optimists believe that everything's going to turn out positively. And uh, this view, um, I believe, is a very dangerous view because it means that we don't have to bother because, mm. you know, everything's going to turn out fine. And the same is true with being a, a pessimist. There are a lot of pessimists around. And so, you know, pessimists take refuge in apathy or apathy that's driven by cynicism. And, you know, neither optimist or pessimist really have to do anything. They're completely excused from engagement. Exactly. But um, uh, I, I got really uh, moved by some words from the writer Barbara Kingsolver. She's an American novelist. And she said, I've been thinking um, a lot lately about the difference between being optimistic and being hopeful. And then she went on, she said, I would say that I'm a hopeful person, although not necessarily optimistic. <laughs> and that really caught my attention. And then she said, here's how I would describe it. The pessimist would say, it's gonna be a terrible winter. We're all gonna die. And the optimist would say, oh, it'll be all right. I don't think it'll be that bad. And then the hopeful person would say, maybe someone will still be alive in February. So I'm going to put some potatoes in the root cellar just in case. <laughs> and then she wrote, um, hope is a mode of resistance. Hope is a mode of resistance and we are in it. It is, um, we're resisting right now prediction uh, we're resisting optimism and we're resisting we're resisting uh, and uh, uh, great pessimism so you know earlier uh, ragu i was talking about radical uncertainty and i think that's where wise hope really rises up really um, shows up because uh, we understand that hope that it is wise, is rooted in the unknown and the unknowable. And um, we are sure in it right now. And it's a very uh, interesting process to, you know, be dancing on the edge of futility, but actually to be lifted up again and again into uh, a, a perspective that is characterized by um, wisdom and hope and that um, metabolizes care. So we're just not sort of uh, falling like a you know, lump of dirty laundry in some corner somewhere, you know? Um, we're, we're, you know, we keep showing up no matter what. Mm. You know, I thought potatoes in the cellar, I thought that, that is hope as a manifestation of wisdom and caring. Mm. Mm. And it's also an expression of resistance to futility and sappy positivity. And um, I, I think wise hope requires that we open ourselves to that which we really can't know mm. and to be surprised, mm. to be perpetually surprised. Yeah. 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 And... Uh... I don't know. Does that make sense to yeah, you at no, all? Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, uh, absolutely. I, I, uh, there's so much that uh, in there for us to embrace, absolutely. And uh, it, it leads me to 
something I you know before we leave each other I uh, your last I, I mean I, how do we how do we put into effect let's just talk about we talked about a couple of things here wise hope and embracing radical uncertainty embracing the mystery right we're talking about uh, a perspective an attitude a um, uh, as part of the eightfold path some effort right effort has to go in and so i it led me to think about uh the last book that you it's just last year or maybe year before i can't remember about edge states and uh you know this leads us into being able to get with some methodology be it perspective or actual practice well, methodology uh, of uh, perspective is, is practice to me, mindfulness. Uh, but talk about the edge states and uh, I th- give, give everybody a, a bit of a handle. I know we've talked about it before, but I think it's worthwhile in this moment. Well, it, you're asking too much, I think, for the time that we have. But, right. um, <laughs> yeah, it's like I yeah. asked Joseph to... Hey, Joseph, you got an hour. Joseph Goldstein came to one of the retreats. He said, what, I, he, he was doing an hour and a quarter talk or something. He said, what should I talk about? I said, talk about mindfulness. You know, that big fat book of six, 700 pages. You, he said, yeah, very funny. But he actually, he got it in. You know, Joseph is so great. We love him. Yeah. So whatever comes to mind that you think would give some kind of leverage over, the, you know, unsticking ourselves from those stories that prevent us from embracing uncertainty, the mystery. Well, you know, I think one thing that's really important, Raghu, right now um, is that we recognize uh, that we are fragile, we're vulnerable, we all have feet of clay, that even the most uh, altruistic or empathic or uh, high integrity, respectful, or engaged person that we know, um, is you know standing on edge on an edge that could collapse under their feet. And what is the, uh, if you will, the fulcrum or the function that transforms this uh, experience of failure and suffering uh, for uh, all of us who are you know we're just human beings um, is compassion. Mm. And I think that this is really, you know, we've all done, you know, been uh, in the great uh, uh, city square of mindfulness and been blessed um, by, you know, the practice of, of mindfulness. But at this point in our world, I think the most important thing to do is to actualize compassion not only for the benefit of others, but to transform the delusions that beset us. So I think that's it in a nutshell. That's what an edge state is. It's mm-hmm. that you know, falling over the edge into the abyss, down into the muck and the mire. And what brings us out of that uh, depth of suffering, humiliation, and failure is this love and care for the world. And we make our way back up to the high edge of goodness. But uh, is it not true? It's very difficult for people in general to send that compassion and love here inside. 
and uh, and until that happens, it it's uh, it's a very tenuous uh, proposition. No, I don't know. I know some people who don't like themselves but are really wonderful in their really? service to others. So I don't want to lay that as a rule for uh, you know this is how it is. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But uh, in general, though, how about a little bit of uh, actualization of developing, cultivating com compassion? Well, I think the beginning is, in fact, um, this uh, capacity for us to be really deeply present um, with others and for others. And that only happens when we're in a concentrated state where we can really give our attention fully to another and then um, uh, behind that attention, of course, is our capacity to uh, discern suffering. You know, what's going on there? And if our attention is fragmented, um, it's very difficult for us to see things realistically. And then what comes behind that, of course, is when you see the truth of suffering um, is care. You know, you, you're not going to, first you have to perceive suffering. So that has to do with attentional balance. And then um, comes caring, concern. And uh, that is really critical in our experience, our capacity to actually be pro-social, you know, roll to soul. Hmm. And then um, from that is, you know, again, uh, asking the question um, uh, directly or at least on the pre-conscious level, what will really serve here? What will serve to alleviate this person's suffering? And uh, hopefully that discernment is characterized by clarity and then there's uh, action coming from um, that discernment that is congruent with what that person really needs. So, you know, I just sort of, that's a kind of narrative overview of compassion. I think, it, I think it's an important one um, because Right now, um, our attention has been uh, colonized by uh, many uh, impulses coming through um, our digital world, which is basically controlled by the corporate world. And um, our capacity to see things clearly has definitely been warped, fragmented. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, also our sort of huge self-concern and am I okay and am I going to survive makes it difficult often for us to really actualize care in a principled and, and loving way. So I think we're at a kind of, uh, what can I say, a sort of phase shift. Um, I think that we have now an extraordinary opportunity for reflection as per being in the middle of this pandemic and then this economic meltdown to turn our attention toward um, what is important in our lives. And just as my relationship with Ram Das was a, you know, uh, manifesting a kind of uh, love in action, uh, it was, mm -hmm. you know, two deep friends, people who cared so much for each other and even though he's gone in the body now, he still is active in my life, you know, as my mm. friend mm. and uh, as an inspirator and as a conspirator and as a teacher of what it is to offer compassion 
uh, in a world that is really vulnerable right now. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, we're, we're in the stew. Um, and it's time to put the potatoes, if you will, not, not in the stew, but in the root cellar. Because <laughs> a few of us might be alive next year. Mm. Who knows? Mm. Can you, can I beseech you to, uh, just before we get off, just a, a few minute meditation or invocation or prayer or something for everybody? Sure. Um, let's see what would be what would be helpful. Um, you know, what, what for me, I think what I'd like to do is to touch into gratefulness. Mm. And um, yeah, yeah, there's so much about grief and uh, so on, but um, I feel that we also have, uh, we have to keep sending um, uh, gratefulness um, to the world, um, no matter how difficult our circumstances are. So I begin with um, gladdening the heart with a deep inhale and a relaxed exhale. And then reflect on these phrases. May I be grateful for this life. All of it, not just some of it. The hard parts, the terrible parts, the beautiful parts. May I be grateful for this life. And may I be grateful for all those who are in my life, my friends, my enemies. And may I be grateful for all of the lessons that have been given to me, the beautiful lessons and the hard lessons. May I use them well, and may I be grateful for them. And may I be grateful that I have the heart to serve. Yeah, may I be grateful that I have the heart to serve. Thank you, Raghu. Thank you, Roshi. Inviting me to um, be mm. with you and to remember our mm. good friend. Yeah, yeah. And certainly ending on may we have the heart to serve is uh, embodies Ramdas so yeah. much. Yeah. Oh, thank you, thank you. And everybody out there, of course, uh, much of what we're mentioning, even books and Roshi's books, and they'll all be available in the show notes. You'll be able to follow through. And, uh, and and a link, please, to you, Paya. Absolutely. We are just, we are just yeah. doing it here. Yeah, um, and we should make more mention than what Roche, Upaya, 
the service that it has performed over many, many years has been such an important, important uh, contribution and offering and, and has been in, in New Mexico for a very long time. And now, uh, you know, as are many of our institutions, uh, they, it needs support. So uh, we will put a, a link in there, Roshi, to allow Thank people you. to uh, to connect with you and Upaya and help out. So for Thank sure, you. for sure. This is uh, Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and we shall see you again. Namaste. Namaste.